Welcome to the Styano Plastic Surgery Podcast with plastic surgeon JJ Styano, the only plastic surgeon in the UK who owns a clinic specializing in breast and body contouring. Evening, Facebook. Good evening. Um, we're live on both modalities and also live, I have reason to believe, on YouTube because I'm, I have got messages on YouTube, I think, during this. I, mean, I think they're from YouTube. They've got a little, that little red thing on them. Anyway, um, hi, Alice. Nice to see you're here. You and me, girl. You're all oh, Alice and Albitas. There you go. Three of us. Excellent. So, um, right then, what have we got? Oh, well, I've got a question. Oh, listen, I feel bad now because there's two people on Instagram. And there's no one on Facebook, and I've got a photo which I can't get on Instagram. But don't worry, Alice and Albertas. I'm going to get it on I'm, just for you. I'm going to get it for you. So, uh, this is a photo. You may or may not be interested in this, but anyway, this is a photo. Why is my tattoo not suitable for excision? Now, miracles of modern science. Uh, I'm going to put the photo on my screen like that. Right. And then um, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna do this. Hold on a minute. Sorry, <laughs> let me get this right. How how can I um, can you see that? There's a light on it, isn't there? Is it this light? What light? Can you see that? Anyway, I don't know if you can see it or not, but anyway, it's a big, it's a big, I, I think it's, no, actually, where is it? Oh, calf. So it's on the calf. Anyway, it's a big tattoo. Okay, it's a big, big tattoo on the calf. Um, so, oh, Khan's on Facebook. There you go. Hi, Khan. Nice to see you. Um, so, uh, yeah, so big, basically, it's a big tattoo on the calf, and it, and it covers like, it's, it's, to be honest with you, it's quite hard to see where where it is, but I think it's sort of below the knee, and it's looks like it's almost the whole width of the of the calf, uh, and that's just and that's just too too big. Oh, Albertas, hello. I have a small tattoo on my wrist that could be removed with surgery and take care of the scar, so that is a as good as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a very very big tattoo on the calf, and the problem is there's not much spare skin on the on the calf. And if you think of it from our point of view, we're not going to be able to take that much skin away from the, the calf. Um, and a lot of people say things like doing skin grafts, and skin grafts aren't good, particularly around a joint. This is around the knee joint. Uh, they're tight. They are unsightly. So in my view, a skin graft wouldn't be good. My view, Jackie's here. Jackie, where you been? Um, my view is that the um, I wouldn't do skin graft. If anything, I'd do serial excision, which makes taking a bit away at the time. But when you've got massive ones, it's just going to take ages. It's three or four months between each serial excision. And that's going to be like seven or eight. What's that? Years. What's that? Three years? Three or four months, three a year, three, yeah, you know, so it's, it's going to be years, basically. So I think it's probably easier just to say it is not suitable for excision. It's too big. It's just a, a, around the calf. It's around the knee. Um, 
laser would be my advice. My laser is always my advice, really, first line for tattoos. But um, there's color in this one, so I can understand if that might not be an op uh, um, appropriate for this person. So, yeah, but I think, unfortunately, not a good one for excision. I should really show you some good ones for excision, shouldn't I? Because uh, uh, the majority of the ones I see really are, are unsuitable because they're too big or they're in too bad an area. Got to be honest, the wrist isn't a great area. There's not much spare skin there either. Carol May has got a question. Hey, I'm a newbie to you, so I try and ask just little stuff at Mo. I desperately want breast implants, and I'm in UK, but it's so expensive here, so going abroad seems my only option, but makes whole experience more scary. TBF, TBF, but, any, but anyway, what's TBF? To be fair? Oh, sorry, let's get rid of the tattoo. Sorry. Um, TBF, but anyway, a main question for me is how long do implants last and how safe is this op long term? Like I've had four C-sections and been fine, but all I'm doing is thinking something bad will happen to me if I put my body through surgery again. What's your thoughts, please? Nice. Um, totally understand, Carol, about the abroad thing. I totally uh, uh, accept and realize that it is significantly cheaper abroad than it is in the UK, and I understand that makes it very attractive and it is a huge industry to be to be honest with you uh tbh um it is a huge industry and uh is very popular for people to go abroad i don't re recommend it or you might say that's you know you wouldn't would you mate uh to be honest with you carol i don't recommend it either way because we sometimes see people who are in europe in uh, france switzerland Belgium, you know, and also in other parts of the country, Scotland, um, parts of Wales and things which are quite far away, sort of North Wales. Um, and I don't recommend people go a long way away for surgery, just in general, either way, whether it be people from here going there or people from there coming here. Uh, as a general rule, it's, it's not great uh, practice. It's not good to have any um, uh, sort of particularly going sort of airline travel around the time of surgery. You're going to increase your risk of clots in the legs and things. But particularly in terms of going to Europe, you've got to ask why is it um, why is it so why is the price so different? And one of the things I have realized, and it's hard to generalize because I'm sure that there are, you know, variety of different providers uh, everywhere in the UK and abroad. But one of the things I've realized is that one thing that certainly we focus on a lot is the aftercare. And I often get people on this Facebook and on the Instagram and the social media and things asking for help, asking for they've got issues, they've got questions. And they're quite shortly, they're quite soon post-op. And my, my response is always, look, you should see a surgeon, really, because they're the ones who did it, and they'll know exactly what's going on. And they're like, well, I can't get hold of my surgeons. My surgeon's not very responsive and things. So you've got to look at the aftercare. You've got to look at how they're going to look after you, um, because the way it works with uh, plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery is you pay for what's called a fixed-price package, which means all the aftercare is included with the price. You cannot just buy aftercare. So you can't just have you can't have surgery out abroad for a certain price and then come back to the UK and try and get aftercare with a plastic surgeon in the UK. That's that it's not just the way it works. You have the, the duty of care is with your surgeon. And so um, I have seen people being a bit frustrated um, in trying to get help and trying to get advice. And particularly if you need further surgery, etc., it might be an issue. So that's just something to bear in mind. The other thing and I talk about this in my book. Carol, you want a copy? You can have one. 
yep, that's the guy. Never accept a lift from strangers. Uh, you can get it uh, on the website, neveraccepttheliftfromstrangers.com. Uh, we charge you post your passing, which, which is 395, I think it is. If you live near uh, Edge Bastard in Birmingham, you can drop into the clinic and pick one up. Um, um, is the training. The training is very variable. And so, so, you know, I can tell people in this country what to look out for. Consultant in the NHS, FRCS, PLAST, specialist register on the GMC. Uh, and, it's, and it's hard enough finding a fully trained surgeon in the UK when we know about all the training. Um, but the training in, 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 in Europe and in other parts of the world, I wouldn't know how to tell you to find a fully trained plastic surgeon because I don't know what their training structure is. So those are the things in terms of going abroad um oh yes and and the the expensive thing so yes we i think one of the things that we do focus on here in the uk is the um, aftercare a lot more and i think you can't uh, undervalue that but also uh, the clinics here in the uk certainly we have quite stringent criteria in terms of infection control in terms of clinical governance in terms of insurance indemnity we have to be registered with the care quality commission uh, and there's quite a lot of um, uh, standards in place that will protect people having this sort of surgery. Are those standards in place in Europe and abroad? I don't know. I'm not saying they're not. It's just that I don't know because I don't know if they've got an equivalent of CQC. They probably have, but you have to sort of research this and find out whether they've got this and what they've got in terms of insurance and um, safeguarding with infection control, etc. So those are the issues around going abroad. Um, in terms of the implants, how long do the implants last? And how safe is the op long term? Uh, a lot of people say they, they've got to be changed every 10 years. They haven't got to be changed every 10 years. Implants these days are made of what's called cohesive gel, which means they, they don't leak liquid silicone like the old ones used to. So they are much safer if the shell ruptures. They tend not to, to leak liquid silicone. So probably the most common problem you're going to have long term with implants is uh, capsular contracture, which is scar tissue forming around the implant. Now, having said they don't have to be changed every 10 years, they can start to go hard around five or 10 years, and you might want to have them changed around 10 years. So, you know, you might want to have them changed around the five or 10 year mark, but they can last longer. And there are different types of implants. There are smooth implants, which go hard a bit quicker, and there are polyurethane foam implants, which go hard uh, slower. They, they take a lot longer to go hard. So depending on the type of implant you have, um, you might, you can get implants which last longer, which are the foam ones. Um, the flip side of that is there's a cancer associated with implants called ALCL. It's very rare and it's curable, but it's still, it's a cancer and it's a, uh, it's a, it's obviously a, a worry and it seems to be rated how rough the implants are. So the rougher the implants, the, the less likely they are going hard. So the longer they'll last in that respect. So the polyurethane ones are sort of very rough and they last longer in that respect, but they've got a higher risk of the ALCL, which is a cancer, whereas the smooth ones have got, um, don't really get the, the ALCL cancer, but they're much more likely to go hard. So there's things to think about in terms of the surgery, and there's no question there are risks with it. Having said that, um, the risks are very low, they're very rare, and it does improve people's quality of life, and it does, it, uh, it does deliver very high satisfaction rates, so what I normally say to people, Carol, is it's up to the individual to weigh up whether it's worth taking on the risks versus the benefits they're going to feel by having implants. So if they're going to feel a huge benefit from having implants, they might accept the risks. If they're not going to have that huge benefit of having implants, if they're not sure whether they want it or not, and you start telling them about capsule contracture, ALCL, breast implant illness, all the things that can go 
um, bad with implants, then they might say, actually, you know what, forget it. So it's actually a balance between the risks and the benefits. And the benefits only you can know, the risks we can tell you, um, and then you can make your own decision on your own judgment on whether you're where you're where you're sitting on that balance. Uh, but it's a, as I say, very popular procedure, very high satisfaction rate, very low complication rate. But it's important that you're aware of all the uh, potential risks and, uh, and uh, complications that can be associated with the surgery. Thanks, Carol. Nice to have you on board, and I hope that's been helpful. Sophia is in the house. Hi, Sophia. And Sophia says, I have a consultation on the 21st. When's that? A few weeks. I'm really looking forward to my journey. Nice. Um, good luck, Sophia. I don't know if the consultation is someone else, but if, whoever it is with, good luck. And if it's with me, looking forward to seeing on the 21st. Can't wait. Um, so, can I, is it me or is, it, is the text of this sort of. It used to scroll, but um, anyway. Anyway, never mind. We'll work with it. Edit. Oh, can edit it. Apply. Anyway, can you go ahead with GA or LA surgery when pregnant? Um, well, I would be wary and I would wonder why you're having surgery. And I, a GA, I would say, well, hmm, let me think about this. So, can you? You can, but it wouldn't be advised. So if you have appendicitis, for instance, uh, or bowel obstruction, or I don't know, some really bad problem, then uh, maybe the again, it's more risk and benefit again, isn't it? And now most of um, cosmetic surgery, which is sort of what I do, um, well, I say most, all of cosmetic surgery is not really um, urgent. Uh, so in that case, I would advise against it if you are thinking of having it, because the um, certainly GA, that's for sure. So general anesthetic. So the drugs we give with a general anesthetic are, um, you just wouldn't want to have those drugs because they, I mean, I'm not an anesthetist, we'd have to talk to the anesthetist, but uh, that you wouldn't want to have any harm to the um, to the unborn child. So I think if it could wait, let's just say it should wait. Local anesthetic, again, I think a lot of people don't like anything, do they? People don't like taking paracetamol when they're pregnant. So I probably wouldn't have a local anesthetic even if I was pregnant, even, you know, even a local. I mean, I guess if you had, again, if you had to, if you fell over and cut your face, you know, you could have it stitched up under local anesthetic. But if, for instance, you've got a mole on your face, um, now, moles often go darker during pregnancy anyway, so people do sometimes worry about moles during pregnancy. I guess if you're really worried that it might be a melanoma or, or a nasty skin cancer, you might um, think about uh, taking it off. But as a general principle, I would say I would advise avoiding surgery when you're pregnant. And I think most pregnant women do not want stuff, you know, drugs or medication and things like that. Um, and, and certainly, I think GA, GA would be uh, would be advised uh, not to have it if you if you could if you could put it off. Uh, LA possible, but again, if you could put it off, I probably would suggest that uh, you put it off. Um, Sophia is with me. Well, there you go. Twenty first. I've got the date in my diary. Sophia, I am counting down the days. Uh, Carol, thank you. Very honest. Thank you. Double thumbs up. Thank you for that. Jade, how? Oh, here we go. Two two part question. This how second part. How long do you have to maintain weight before any kind of surgery, etc. Tummy tuck or breast lift? Um, 
there's no rule, Jade. Uh, in the private sector, there's there's no rule, and it's it's surgeon specific. There's no sort of guidance. Um, often in the NHS, you have to sort of maintain weight for six months or twelve months or two years sometimes before having surgery. But uh, there's no hard and fast rule in the private sector. And what I try and do, Jade, is I try and have a partnership with the patient. So I try and explain that rather than me saying to you, you've got to have a stable weight for six months before having surgery, you've got to be true to yourself. And I know people often want the surgery as soon as they can, but you've got to be true to yourself because you want the best result you can get, obviously. And you're going to get a better result if you can maintain the rate, the weight. And things like tummy tuck and breast lift are expensive operations. They're not cheap. And if you put on weight after surgery or lose weight after surgery, you're going to affect the result of your surgery. You're going to have a better result if you had maintained the weight. Um, so you really want to give yourself the best chance of getting the best result. So if your weight's high and you want to lose weight, then um, then you're going to get a better result because you're going to have more spare skin. So your breast lift or tummy tuck might be required more because you have more skin if you lose weight first. And also your complication rate is going to be less if you can get to low, lower rate weight. And sim uh, similarly, you don't want to sort of force yourself to get to a low weight to have surgery and then put weight on because you're going to put weight on on your breasts and your tummy and you're going to stretch the skin again. So you don't want to lose weight or put on weight after surgery. So uh, it's normally a conversation, Jade, <clears throat> with you to say, look, you need to be stable and comfortable with your weight as much as possible before having any surgery uh, to give yourself the best result. <clears throat> Zoe, can I lose weight after breast augmentation? You can, Zoe, and I understand that people have to live a life. So it's all very well me saying to you, you've got to be at stable weight before having surgery. You might say, well, I can't, I don't know what's going to happen next year or five years or 10 years. Um, and, and, you know, obviously people lose weight and put on weight all the time. Um, the, the problem is, Zoe, it's unpredictable. That's the problem. I don't know what's going to happen if you put on weight. Sometimes people put on weight and it all goes on their breasts. Sometimes none of it goes on their breasts. So you might have surgery now to have breast augmentation, to have the size you want to be, and then you might put on weight and they might go on your breasts and they might be too big then. As I say, it might not. It's just unpredictable. And you're better off if you can when you do surgery Get, have it on as predictable a, a playing field as possible. God knows this surgery is as unpredictable enough as it is without the the, the, um, the added issue of, of weight fluctuations. So you can lose weight after breast augmentation, but um, it might affect the result. It might not, but it might. Um, and, the, and probably the, well, no, I wouldn't say it's the worst thing you can do, but a really bad thing you can do, um, Zoe, is... Um, uh, put on and lose weight because if you put on weight it makes them bigger and if you lose weight it makes them smaller but the skin doesn't retract and so you're left with skins and then they can droop so putting on and losing weight is the is the sort of you know the, the real problem putting on weight in itself isn't so big it isn't so bad everything gets bigger you know and everything you might think oh, okay but then if you lose weight then your breast can droop and if you just spent loads of money on a breast augmentation you might not be happy so um Louise, what's the smallest CC breast implant, please? I don't know, Louise. Hold on a minute. Right, first book that comes to hand. I mean, obviously different uh, companies. This is a Nagel uh, catalog. Smallest is a 150. That's not, that's not really, that's quite big, actually. I'm sure others do smaller. 
this one, this Polytech catalog. What's the smallest here? Um, smallest Polytech uh, is uh, 55 cc. So there you go. You know, that's um, it's a special order on a six week wait. 110 is the smallest sort of standard. So yeah, 55 is the absolute smallest, um, Louise. I hope that's been helpful. Um, in Polytech, all the uh, different companies will have different ranges. So, uh, yeah. Uh, feel free to uh, expand on that question if there's anything more I need to say about the smallest breast implant. Um, Zoe, thank you. I lost weight before breast augmentation in September 2020 and since put weight on and want to lose it again. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing I'd say to you, Zoe, is don't be, don't be too disheartened by what I've just said because you might be okay. It's, everybody's different because sometimes people don't put weight on their breasts. So, um, so you lost weight before the breast augmentation. Since put it on and now want to lose it again. Yeah, I mean that's the worry, Zoe. With certainly with significant weight fluctuations, you worry that the skin will be stretched and might droop. I'm not saying it will. It's just a. It's just a. You know, it might. But let's be positive. Let's um. What do we call it? Um, not visualize. Manifest. Yeah, manifest it to be okay. That's what you need to do. Um, Jade, would you say a breast lift or implants would be better after weight loss? Sorry for the amount of questions. I'm new to all this. Jade, you don't have to say sorry. That's what we rely on. Is the uh, is the oxygen for this? Is the is the bread and water for this? Questions. Um, Jade, people get themselves tied into right old knots about all this breast lift and implants thing. Terrible knots about it. Broadly speaking, let's keep it simple, shall we? I mean, let's just. Let's boil it down to the the nubbins of it, right? This is the nubbins of it. Is it the shape or the size or both? Yeah. If it's the shape, i.e. they're droopy, then it's a lift. If it's the size, then, well, if they're too small, then it's implants. So implants make them bigger. A lift makes the shape better, but doesn't do anything to the size. There you go. That's it. Simple as that, Jade. So is it the size or is it the shape? Now, it might be the size and the shape. So if it's if they're too small and they're droopy, then you could have a lift and implants. Or, as I say, if it's or if it's the size of the shape and they're too big and they're droopy, then it's a reduction. But but broadly speaking, people often think, should I have implants? Should I have a lift? I'm like, well, what size bra do you wear? They say I wear a 34D. I'm like, well, what size do you want to wear? Well, I'm happy being a D. So what's the problem when I take my bra off? They, they 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 sit. Well, that's a lift, then, isn't it? You know, what size bra do you wear? Thirty-two B. What do you want to wear? Double D. Oh well, it's implants, then, isn't it? Because you want to be bigger. Sometimes it's a combination. Now it's not it's not quite as simple as that, but I think that's quite a good way to think of it. To be honest with you, I think if you think of it like that, you won't go far wrong. Um, but the reason it's not quite as simple as that is because a lift. Sometimes I, I make it clear to people the sort of shape you can get with a lift because it's not quite as full in the upper part as you can get with implants. And sometimes people want fuller up there. And so they want implants for the fullness. But then you get into into difficult waters when people want the implants for the fullness, but they don't want to be bigger. So then you get into into uh, into swampy waters, not swampy, you know, into difficult territory. Swampy waters isn't a good thing to say. But, you know, it's, it's a tricky one that when people are happy with the size, but want that fullness that you get with implants. I'm like, well, you know, really, it's just a lift, I would say. And anyway, we could we could go on about that all night, Jade. But uh, that's basically it. Are they big enough? 
If they are, lift. If they're not, implants. And it might be that the shape, you might need a lift and implants if they're droopy and they're too small. Simple, so what's the fuss? Simple, isn't it? It's, it's not that difficult, this job. Well, the job is difficult, but the decision-making isn't as difficult as I think people make out, patients make out. But uh, no, the job, I wouldn't say the job isn't that difficult. Um, Louise, you're very welcome. Smallest CC, best implant, you're very welcome. Jade, would be both. Well, there you go. If it's shape and size, then a lift and implants. Big deal, a lift and implants, oh, Jade. And I often say to people, if they're borderline for one, you can split it and do what lift or the implants and then do the implants or the lift. Some surgeons routinely split it. I do do it all in one, but, you know, it's a big deal doing a lift and implants. Emma Lou, hello. Not sure what that emoji is. Waving, is it? Or clapping? Or I don't know. Anyway, hello. When I have my consultation, will you be able to give me an approximate date that I will have surgery, please? I have work commitments, so I weren't sure if I could give certain weeks and months that I can book off work. Thank you. Yes, Emma. It is tricky. I've got to be honest with you, Emma. I'm going to be full disclosure with you now, Emma. It is tricky in terms of the dates. I do believe we do have dates that we can give you dates on the day of your consultation. But at the same time, if you have specific dates and we can't give you those dates, then that there might be a situation where we might say we'll have to get back to you because we are the, the hospitals are main most of the hospitals are being used by the NHS and they're releasing dates to us when they can give us dates. And sometimes, you know, it's a bit sort of ad hoc. It used to be a lot more um, sort of scheduled. My, my practice used to be like every Monday and Tuesday I was doing surgery and that we all knew where we were and you could book a date, you know, weeks, months in advance and we could book you in no problem. But these days we've only got limited dates for surgery and then sort of we're getting them as, as we can. It is getting better though, Emma. I think it is getting better. But so the answer to that is, I hope we will be able to give you a date um, that's suitable to you when you come and we will try to, but you know, let's just hope it, yeah, to say yes, yes. Um, Carol May, God, I hope I get to talk to you if I go for this. I feel more relaxed and and worried already. I want to look like a woman, like now, lol, but I'm just so bloody anxious. Um, yeah, you feel more relaxed and worried. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, Carol, yeah, you can talk to me. Here we go. Here we are. We're talking. <clears throat> Got to be honest with you, Karen. You got to be honest. You got to be realised that there are bad things that can happen when you do breast implants. Having said that, they're extremely rare, so I wouldn't let it sort of overload you. But uh, if you, in a way, is this going to? This might sound bad. You know, if you can be put off, then that might not be a bad thing. So I do, I do tell everybody all the bad things that can happen. I say I do. I think we all should really. All doctors should. So if people aren't telling you about capsid contracture or uh, breast implant illness or ALCL. You know, it's not really good practice. You should be aware of all these things because they are they are factually um, happening in the world somewhere. You know, these issues are, are occurring. So, um, yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad you feel more relaxed. Not sure about the worried bit, but hey-ho, kind of everything. Jade, thank you. Thank you, Jade. Emma, that's great. Thank you. See you Friday. Look at that. See you Friday. Look at that. How exciting. Um, who had it on the 21st? Someone's got it on the 21st. Uh, Sophia's got it on the 21st. Emma's got it on Friday. Look at that. God. I'm going to shave. 
and I'm going to get my suit on, Emma. Well, I'll put my suit on, but then I have to wear the scrubs. I will, I will tart myself up a bit, Emma, uh, for Friday. Looking forward to it. Um, here we go. Here's a question. Why do I need steroid injections after keloid removal? Niche question, that, isn't it? Niche question. I'm sure a lot of you are sitting there thinking, what is he going on about? Um, so I, I don't know if you know what keloids are. Keloids are sort of big, lumpy scars. The problem with keloids are they're difficult to treat. Keloid scars are difficult to treat because the reason you get a keloid scar is because it's the way your body scars. Your body has an inappropriate reaction to scarring. They're often from an innocuous thing like an ear piercing or an injection for the BCG or something or some, some innocuous thing. And it creates this very red, raised, florid scar from a tiny little pinprick. So therefore, they're difficult to treat because a lot of people come with these big keloid scars and they think, oh, yeah, cut that off, please, mate. And you're like, well, hold on a minute. You've got that from an ear piercing from a dot. An ear piercing is a dot. If I cut them off, I'm going to give you a scar like that. So if a dot's gone to that, what's that scar? It's going to go to even, you know, it's going to exponentially up and be worse than the flipping dot. So that's why we worry about cutting out keloid scars. And actually, it's depending on how big the scar is, it's sort of a last resort to cut them out because you run the risk of making them worse. Because if the problem is your, the way your body scars, we haven't modified that. We haven't cured you of that problem. That's a problem with you. God knows they're in the in the lab and, you know, investigating and researching keloid scars and trying to work out why they happen and trying to see if we can modify your body's re response to, to stop you from causing keloid scars. But that's not where we are. We're not there yet. We don't know why they happen. There's no animal model for them. Um, and it's and there's a lot of research being done on keloid scars. But at the moment, we're stuck with the fact that the fact is you form keloid scars. So we're very wary about doing surgery on you because we don't want to give you another keloid scar which could be worse than the first one that you've got so that's the first thing but sometimes they're so big these big ones on the earlobe and stuff that you say right you've got to do an, an, um, an excision and cut them off and what we do when we do that excision is we do what's called an intralesional excision which is sort of like a debulking so you sort of take like taking a slice of cake so you leave a rim of keloid behind you're cutting into keloid when you're making the cuts you're cutting into the keloid scar and you're, you're leaving a rim of keloid scar behind you're not cutting normal skin so you try and you, you, well, you don't try you don't cut normal skin when you do an intralesional excision of a stick of a keloid scar and then you're stitching keloid to keloid and the fact that you're, all your cuts are in keloid means you're less likely to form another keloid because you're not cutting into normal skin you're cutting into keloid scar so therefore when you do an excision of a keloid scar you're left with a rim of keloid you're left with a residual bump of keloid and to get rid of that residual bump of keloid then you use steroid injections so steroid injections is a treatment for keloid scars but when they're massive you think that's not gonna that's um uh, what's the way of putting it? But that's not going to make an effect, uh, steroid injections into a really big keloid. So if you can debulk it and make it into a smaller keloid, then you can try and get rid of that residual keloid with steroid injections, which are an anti-inflammatory, which will dampen down that inflammation, which is potentially causing that keloid. So that answers your question. Why do I need a steroid injection after keloid remover? Well, that, my friend, is the reason why. Um... Jade, what you got to say, Jade? 
would you need to have your implants changed every few years or would they last forever if that makes sense but somewhere in between jade that does make sense so sometimes uh, there's a sort of thing that goes around saying they've got to be changed every 10 years but they haven't the main reason for having them change is them to go hard and i normally say to people it takes about five or ten years for them to go hard um so if you're having implants you have to be aware that they might go hard and you might need to have them changed there are different types i wouldn't say they last forever um you know i think uh, they may well and going hard is probably the main problem you're going to get with them so they may well go hard having said that you might you don't have to have them changed if you if you're happy with them going hard or you or you don't you know don't want to have them changed that's fine you don't have to have them changed it's called capsular contraction it's just scar tissue it's your body scar tissue around the implant so if you if you you know you don't have to have them changed but they can get uncomfortable there are different types of implants that can you can have like polyurethane foam ones which are uh, less likely to go hard or at least take longer to go hard but they're more associated with the alcl which is a type of cancer associated with implants so a lot of people don't fancy those very rare treatable but still understandably don't fancy those so they'll go with the other types which aren't as rough and so the less rough they are they're more likely to go hard but the less likely they'll get capsular contracture so there's a balance to be had when you decide what type of implant there's a range of implants available um, some go hard quicker than others but the ones that go hard slower have other risk profiles associated with them so you have to decide where where you want to go in terms of which implant to have but broadly speaking whichever implant you have there's a risk that you might need to have them changed at some point in your life uh, particularly if you're young I wouldn't say they'd last forever. Um, do you do umbilicoplasty procedures? Got no context for that. Don't really know what that. Um... So basically, umbilicoplasty just means changing the shape of the umbilicus. The umbilicus is your belly button. So do do I do changing belly button shape procedures? Yes, I do. So I guess the answer is yes in that case. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, often with a with a um, with a tummy tuck, you're creating a new belly button, and maybe that if that doesn't look quite good, quite right. You can do an umbilicoplasty to change the shape of it. Um, sometimes you can lose the belly button. It's a rare complication of a tummy tuck. Some people are born without belly buttons, or they've got ab anterior abdominal wall problems. So sometimes we need to recreate a belly button in someone who hasn't got one. That would also be called an umbilicoplasty. So, um, yeah, so changing the shape of a belly button or recreating a belly button if you haven't got one, yes, that, that, that would all fall under the umbrella of umbilicoplasty. And that is something that um, I and plastic surgeons do. Yes, it is. Do you carry out 360 lipo? Um, well, that's a Nicole. Nicole, Nicole, Nicole. Nicole, Nicole. Nicole. Um, well, do you do lipo? Yes, I do do liposuction. What do you mean 360 degree? Do you mean, I mean, obviously, well, not obviously, 360 degree liposuction all the way around your body. Um, you could do that. I probably, you know, the problem with doing 360 thing, Nicole, is particularly if you're asleep, if you're awake, if you do it under local sedation, you might be a bit easier on the turns, but it's turning people when they're asleep is a bit of a uh is is a bit of an ordeal so we try and avoid doing turning people so i would I, i'll be honest with you nicole i would avoid doing liposuction in the front and the back i would probably just do liposuction on one or the other and it's usually the front that's the problem 
so I wouldn't do 360 liposuction particularly. 360 degrees tummy tuck, maybe. That's a tummy tuck that goes all the way around. But to do... So maybe what you're asking, Nicole, is one, I'm one of these people who do these sort of massive liposuction. Some people do massive, you know, five liters, big liposuction. No, no, I don't do massive areas of liposuction. For me, liposuction is usually combined with tummy tuck to hit the, the hips and the sides. I don't... Personally... I don't find that you can get, you know, huge, significant body contouring with liposuction alone in my hands. I know people do it, but the what problem is you don't get significant skin retraction. So, for instance, the anterior abdomen, I don't find that uh, I get very good results from liposuction on the anterior abdomen. On the sides, yes, the skin recoils better, but the anterior aspect of the abdomen, no, the skin doesn't recoil very well. So, for me, the best way to do that is with a tummy tuck. Um, so, I yeah, so I would probably be more, I'm more of a tummy tuck combined with liposuction person rather than sort of 360-degree liposuction. On the other hand, skin tag removal, yes, I do do that. Right, thank you. That was a dog. Thanks for that. Yeah, the dog's agreeing with that. So, yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah, we do We do three, We do do skin tag removal. Yeah, skin tag removal is a, is a yes. Carol, that's uh, Jade. Jade, sorry, Carol's got next question. <laughs> Called you the wrong name. Jade, sorry. It's the dog. It's not my fault. It's putting me off. Um, what's it yet? Um, thank you so much for your help. I think the padded bra is going to be my thing for a while. However, I do go ahead. I'm calling you. Oh, well, there you go. Um, there you go. Um, Carol's going with the padded bra. You go, Carol. Go with the padded bra. So much less complications with the padded bra, honestly. Um, you know, no scar, much cheaper. That's it. In fact, we got these things in the clinic, um, sizes where you put in your in your bra to give you an idea of volume. And we've been talking about this for ages. It's one of those things where you talk and talk about, why don't we just sell them? Why don't we just sell the sell the sizes, you know? I think life would be a lot easier sometimes if we just sold the sizes, but um, you know, getting them branded and all that. Anyway, but yes, Carol, Paddy Bras, not not such a bad, not such a bad plan. Am I allowed to bring my four-year-old to the appointment? Um, yeah, we had a thing the other day with someone who had a uh, children. I mean. The thing about children is you cannot have or we cannot allow unsupervised children in the clinic. Um, we we don't treat children in the clinic. That's something we decided a while ago just in terms of the CQC and the governance around treating children. So we don't treat anyone under the age of 18. But I understand that sometimes people will bring children um, to the to the clinic if they're um, coming for an appointment or something. But you can't have a, a, a child unsupervised. So un unfortunately, we can't have a, uh, if, if you are going to be um, having a procedure or something, then um, you would need to bring someone to supervise your child while you have the procedure. So, yeah. Uh, do you do any reconstruction work or is it primary cosmetic surgery at your clinic? It's primarily cosmetic surgery at the clinic. I mean, I used to do a lot of reconstructive work and I actually spoke to someone the other day for a breast reconstruction because she'd been waiting so long on the NHS. Um, uh, so I can very much, I can talk about breast reconstruction, uh, but I've got to be honest with you, what I say to most people, if you're not insured, breast reconstruction 
is a very expensive thing to do self-pay because you have to pay for every operation whereas with cosmetic surgery they've got packages so if you have any complications any problems it's all included in the package but for reconstruction it's not so uh it, you know that can be an issue if, you, if you're having reconstruction privately so i normally say the nhs does do it well or obviously private insurance so it's primarily cosmetic surgery at the clinic although my background is breast reconstruction after uh, mastectomy after cancer what makes a mole eligible for just a shave rather than full surgical excision so the two criteria for a mole to be eligible for a shave one it has to be clinically benign as in when we've examined you we don't we're not worried that it's anything cancerous if there's anything cancerous we would take the whole mole out and do an excision so it has to be clinically benign and it has to be raised you can't do a shave on a flat mole so it has to be raised above the level of the skin so if it's raised above the level of the skin and it's clinically benign you it will be eligible for a shave or an excision even those even though those two criteria are met some people still might want an excision which is fine um you know you've got an option of having a excision or a shave if it's raised and clinically benign if it's not raised if it's flat or if we're worried it's a cancer the best bet is to have it cut out and stitched up linear scar and stitches and stuff like that but if it is raised and uh, benign, then a shave might be an option because this pat the, the, the um, sort of volume of scarring with a shave is slightly less than with a, it's not like a, it's not an obvious scar, it's just a patch. So you might want to have a shave. I have a blue mole. Should I be worried about it? I'd rather not send photos. Um, not in itself. No, a blue mole or a blue nevus in itself is nothing to worry about. A blue nevus is just the... Uh, pigmented cells the melanocytes are a bit deeper in the dermis um, giving it this blue look so in itself a blue nevus is not uh, anything to particularly worry about but if you have a a mole you know if you've had it for a long time and it's not changed and you the fact that you're using the term blue mole presumably means you've seen a doctor for it then that's fine i wouldn't worry about it as long as you've had your your, your mole something you know i think if you if you are asking the question you should have it looked at <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me you should have it looked at by someone but if you've had it looked at and it's benign and you're not it's not changed then no that's fine and if you don't want to send photos that's fine too um <clears throat> but if you're asking you can't mess about with moles so if you're asking the question should i be worried about my mole i'd be like well if you without even sit you should get it looked at you know just go to your gp get it looked at because once they've looked at it they can often say oh yeah that's fine or you know that should be looked at you can't mess about with moles skin cancers are rare but they're out there certainly the bad skin cancers like melanoma the one we worry about are, 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 you know they're not common so i don't want to worry you but you need to you, you need it's, it's a bad thing when it happens so you need to be care careful <coughs> i don't know i've lost it i've lost it i'm on my last question i don't know if i'll survive i think i'll i think i'll make it through the last question but don't let that stop you if you've got a question this is the last question guys are stretch marks common in breast augmentation patients no. no 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 well not in my patients anyway i think i'm right in saying we were talking about this the other day it's probably why the questions come up um i think i can remember three patients with uh, stretch marks definitely two i, I think three um 
it's not common and i think i try not to oh I, I i'm not the guy that puts in big implants you know i'm not a guy if you want really big implants um i always respect the, the boundaries of your breast i won't go outside the, the borders of your breast so i'm not one of these people who will put in 800 cc implants or thousand cc or 1500 cc's that's not really my thing so I, I wonder i don't know if if you do put in bigger implants i would imagine that it might cause more damage to the skin which is basically what stretch marks are um so it can happen as i say it's not unheard of there are you know i have got some patients with stretch marks but not many and it's not a common thing so it's not something sort of, sort of high on my list of worries um you know i know i put carol off having surgery so um you know there are other things i would worry about you know capsid contracture alcl breast implant illness um things like that would be probably higher on my list than stretch marks but still it's a thing so it's probably something you should put into the mix if you are thinking of having uh, implants whoa that was emotional and intense so i hope that's been helpful if you've got any questions free, feel free to speak now or forever hold your peace no 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 not forever hold your peace hold your peace for a week because i'll be back here uh right yeah next week tuesday seven o'clock right here uh for more of the same and uh so feel free to uh get in touch message me on instagram facebook call me um email me info at cyanoplasticsurgery.co.uk call me 01214543680 don't forget to subscribe to my youtube channel <laughs> Diano Clinic, I think it's called. Um, I don't know why I said that. Um, hold on a minute. Has Jade come in with a question? Wait a minute. I think we've got a question. Carol, Jade's coming in with a last minute question. When having come back, everyone, both of you, come back. Um, when having a tummy tuck, do you have to have drains in? If so, how long for? Jade, you don't have to have drains in. I do use drains. It's what we are generally using less drains in terms of surgery and uh tummy tuck is one of the last bastions where drains are still used um there are people who don't use drains so you can do tummy tucks without using drains but it's one of the operations so tummy tucks and big breast reductions basically the two operations where i still use drains so i do use drains how long they you don't go home with them so usually i would say one night uh for the drains um and then they come out and you go home so you don't go home with the drains they, they come out before you go I still do use them because I worry about that space there. So they're suction drains, they're under negative pressure to, to remove any fluid to help that space to stick down. But there are very, um, uh, uh, you know, reasonable techniques that are, that are being used that don't use them. And maybe one day I'll stop using them, to be honest with you, because patients don't really like them. Um, but having said that, it doesn't increase your length of stay because I think you're probably going to be in overnight anyway because it's quite a long operation. Um, Maybe not. Maybe you could go home the same day if you didn't use drains. But anyway, whatever. Um, I do use drains, yeah. But not everyone does. And it doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It's just everyone's different, uh, different experiences. Jade, thank you for that last-minute question, Jade. Uh, very, very um, grateful to you for participating. I am... Uh, I have a lie down a glass of water because my water's finished. No, it hasn't. Mm -mm. It is now. And I'm going to um, reconvene. Same time next week. Hope to see you there. Uh, all in fair warn. Stop in the stream. Stop in the stream.
stopping the stream. Have a question not covered in today's show? Then send it over to info at styanoplasticsurgery.co.uk using the hashtag AskJJ. We'd love to hear from you.